welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Todd, and Tude. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Tude here. This is Album Nerds Podcast. Got my buddies, my friends, my compadres, Andy and Don with me. How are you fellas doing today? Doing well. What's up, buddy? Hey, hey. how you doing, pal? <laughs> Uh, welcome to the show, everybody. If you're new here, let me tell you what it's all about. It's three dudes who love sitting around talking about albums. In the past, we kind of picked these albums ourselves. Um, but this year, we introduced this new component to the show called The Wheel of Musical Destiny. And basically what that is, if you've ever seen Wheel of Fortune, it's a huge spinner with a bunch of different musical topics, genres, things that we're familiar with and some that we aren't as much. And we kind of leave it up to fate to decide what we're going to listen to and recommend. Kind of helps us expand our musical repertoires a bit and uh, broaden our horizons. And hopefully it does the same for you guys. It also provides us a way to be uh, more interactive. So you can uh, submit your ideas to the wheel here. So yeah, we spun the wheel last at the end of the last episode. And it landed on debut record yeah this one's pretty straightforward right so basically the you know the first uh, lp released by uh, by any artist so uh, each of us uh, will be bringing one of those to the table uh, we'll also have this week's question which we'll discuss and then we will spin the wheel of musical destiny uh, again to find out what our next episode's theme will be you sir are correct why don't we get to these debut albums all right andy what did you choose you Choo-choo-choose me? Yeah, so, so for my debut record selection, I went with a record entitled Debut. Clever. I know, right? See that? See that tie yeah. in there? Yeah. Thank him. Thank him. <laughs> <laughs> debut is the debut record from Bjork. If you remember her from the early 90s. She's very popular in the sort of dance slash pop genres. Why don't we jump in and play a cut from the middle of the record. This is one of the first singles entitled Big Time Sensuality. Still taste of Big Time Sensuality off of Debut, which was Burek's first record after her time with the Sugar Cubes. Um, in the mid-80s to the early 90s, um, which was much more of like a traditional like indie rock group. Um, if you listen back to the Sugar Cubes at all, maybe we'll play, just for perspective, just a little taste of what the Sugar Cubes are doing right before they disbanded in 1992. This is a little hit of hit. <laughs> Their hit single off of the previous record. So yeah, pretty big shift. Sonically there, I would say, from you know, over the course of, of one year, really, in terms of musical timeline. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that better, but that's usually, that's pretty much expected <laughs> from me. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't play with her vocals as much as, as she did in her solo time. Yeah, so. she stays more kind of in that expected space, I would say, in rock. Did you guys listen to her, the Sugar Cubes at all? With them. I was aware of them because I, I remember they actually toured with New Order and Public Image Limited. And then I remember the one song hit was kind of an MTV hit. <laughs> I was not aware. I did eventually go back and listen to them just because I wanted to hear 
what she sounded like with an actual band and not a bunch of <laughs> RuPaul dance club music, but yeah, it's good. <laughs> well, it re- it reminds me a little bit of like you know the "You Better Work" song mm-hmm. by RuPaul hmm. from around the same time. Okay, okay. I would never have made that connection, but right. yeah, it just sounded a lot like all that other dancey pop stuff. Yeah, well, it's funny because uh, I was reading a couple of interviews with Bjork from this time period. And she felt like what she was dealing with the sugar cubes was kind of very formulaic and just kind of expected at the time. Um, so she wanted to bust out of that and kind of get something in her own lane and create her own sound. And I think from that perspective, this record was a big success. She really did kind of establish herself as her own voice and brought this still early days, uh, dance culture in the UK kind of, at least to me and a lot of other young folk in the u.s kind of first time really hearing this like house music sound combined with the pop music and some other instrumentation we're a little more familiar with um so for me this record was pretty influential in terms of what i was listening to in the 90s what i found confusing about this album when it was out i remember seeing it and out in record stores and stuff the cover does not sell what it is it looks more like a folk singer or tracy chapman type of a thing her just on the cover, kind of black and white, kind of messy hair, not not all done up to look like a dance hall, a CNC music factory type of thing, which is what it's closer to sonically. So it is, it's a kind of a odd relationship with fans. Fans of this were people I knew back at the time that weren't into dance music, but for some reason that she was like the alternative dance music, even though it sounded pretty much the same to me. Don, what about you? Were you into this? Was this a thing for you? Or I did not personally get into into her, but you know the the circles I was running in at the time. You know, people were were into Bjork. MTV was really promoting her hard. You know, I, I feel like Human Behavior that was a really colorful uh, colorful video. I, I remember that got uh, a lot of uh, exposure. You know, she was really. Maybe the the female face of alternative music at that time. I, I'm trying to think of who else might might fit in there. I mean, she was certainly bigger than somebody like Liz Fair uh, at the time. Listening to it now, I enjoyed going through it uh, again. Particularly, you know, this time I was I was I spent more time listening to the to the lyrics, uh, which are are more interesting than than I remember. What about you, Andy? What drew you to this? I mean, were you a fan of this at the time or did this come later? Um, yeah, I was a fan of it at the time. I think what Bjork's appeal, especially to maybe the more feminine audience, is her sort of like quirky personality. And a lot of these songs, they do have like a dance club vibe to them, have like that sort of four on the floor dance beat, house, you know, house beat. Her lyrics and vocals are so intimate and sort of nuanced that you don't really get that in dance music a lot. And I think that is what gives her that personality that people resonate with. And maybe that's why the record album cover is a little bit more intimate and personal and maybe subdued than you would expect for a record that's kind of loud and brash. Yeah, I I get that. That part that does make sense to me now because the lyrics definitely have more substance and say, what is love? Right. Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> but to, to me, sonically, those are very it's similar sounds, but I get that they're 
were more layers perhaps of the artist sharing who she is as a part of it, not just saying danceable stuff, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like pump up the jam or whatever. So <laughs> I, I, I'll give it that. I guess I, uh, I appreciate her, her quirkiness. In fact, it, it reminds me um, just that how she would play with her vocals and stuff and just um, sound really silly. I mean, the cure on some of their albums, some of their songs there, uh, Robert Smith gets kind of quirky and, and, and strange at, at times. So I guess that, that, that appeals to me to, to some extent. Yeah. I think she kind of established that, that quirkiness on this record, but she really expands on it later on in her discography. And I, I wouldn't say this record is, is her best or, or even among her top records, but I think in terms of debut, I mean, debuts are sometimes a little bit rocky and sometimes a little bit rough around the edges. But as long as you have a clear idea of the direction she wanted to head in, and I think she did, clearly. One thing that she talks a lot about at this time, wanting to incorporate into her music, was more jazz, which I thought was interesting because I didn't really pick up on that as a youngster in a lot of her earlier records. Um, but listening back to this today, there are a few tracks that really do dabble more in, I guess, traditional jazz sounds. And one of those is actually a cover song from the middle of the record um, entitled Like Someone in Love. Maybe we should play a little, little clip of that now. It's a pretty interesting take on an old jazz standard. Yeah, that was among the songs that I enjoyed most on this. The oh, ones really? that didn't have dance beats. A lot of some of the songs towards the end of the album, those were the ones that I liked the best that just had her voice, which is an interesting, quirky sound and didn't have all that bam, 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 bam stuff going on in it. The record's probably three quarters bam, 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 and a quarter <laughs> more intimate moments where it's just more her and her voice, which I, she does, she is pretty compelling just on her own. So, any final thoughts? Dudes. Uh, another another person that it reminds me of a, a little bit is uh, Sinead O'Connor, particularly Sinead O'Connor's first album, The Lion and the Cobra. She really plays with her her voice uh, a lot, and also you know Sinead O'Connor also experimented with with some jazzy sounds and also a, a little bit of a little bit of dance as well. So. Hmm. Oh, interesting connection. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I believe it's Sinead. <laughs> Sinead O'Connor. <laughs> The, what was that? Saturday Night yeah. Live or something? There was a Sinatra What's thing where he was introducing crap. Sinead. Or Sinbad O'Connor. Yeah, that's what it was. Sinbad O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So once again, the, uh, the album is entitled Debut by Bjork. Came out in uh, 1993. Uh, check it out if you haven't heard it. It's a fun lesson. Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. And now is the time when we answer some questions that we've asked ourselves. <laughs> you listeners are also welcome to answer these questions. In fact, we encourage it. Socials at Album Nerds and Discord. What was the first debut record you personally owned? Yeah, this is actually one of the first records I've ever owned. It just happened to be a debut. Um, that was from... Counting Crows, their debut record. I'm pretty sure it's a debut. August and everything after. Yeah. 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 Huge album. Pretty, pretty fun record. Even listening back to it, and we talked about it maybe a few years ago on the show. Still really holds up fairly well, I would say. Or like yeah. nostalgia talking. <laughs> no, it, uh, it does. It Unique voice and I, music was so weird at that time. Alternative was pretty much everything. 
So you could be a cool hip band and sound like Van Morrison, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it worked. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it still holds up. How about you, Don? What was your first debut? Well, anytime we go into my musical past, the, the answer is almost always going to be Duran Duran. So, um, Duran Duran's uh, self-titled <laughs> debut would have been the first one that I owned. Of course, that was a couple of years. I mean, they, I think it would have been after Rio that I went back and got the, you know, the, the first record. But as far as like an album that I bought when it was current, it was probably Nine Inch Nails Pretty Hate Machine, oh. which at the time I didn't get, you know, everybody, you know, told me I had to, had to listen to it because I was into, electronic stuff and i didn't get pretty hate machine at the time i you know later decided that i that i liked it well that's pretty adventurous pick for a youngster (laughs) yeah uh my pick was not adventurous it was not really my choice i got a cd player i didn't have any cds but we'll get to that in a second now i want to establish i did have a cassette collection of a bunch of albums from you know those mail order columbia house and stuff a lot of greatest hits, a lot of Huey Lewis in the News, Hall & Oates, that kind of stuff, uh, some rap. But I don't think any of them were debut albums. I can't remember for sure. So I'm going to go with the first CD debut that I remember clearly. Uh, my friend wanted me to have a CD to play. And so he gave me one he didn't want anymore. And it was a debut <laughs> album. And it was by a storied artist named Robert Van Winkle, <laughs> otherwise known as Vanilla Ice. To the extreme. <laughs> I listened to it because it was the only CD I had. That was my first debut wow. album. <laughs> now, did that, the record have Ice Ice Baby on it? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes, he did rock a mic like a vandal, <laughs> light up a stage, wax a chump like a candle. What are you going to do? It was awesome. So, anyway, yeah, that's that's me. The, Mr. Cool Rock and Roll Guy who's in your eyes. <laughs> so, hang my head in shame. What about you? What about you listeners out there? What was your first debut album? Whether it was a gift or whatever, if it's someone's debut album, that's the one you got to tell us about at Album Nerds and on Discord. Oh, we, uh, we started having, we're sponsoring a new band. It's called The Velvet Underground. When, since I don't really believe in painting anymore, I thought it would be a nice way to combine music and, and art. Okay, so... Uh, my pick for, for this week is, uh, The Velvet Underground and Nico by The Velvet Underground and Nico. Uh, comes from, uh, March 1967. The voice you heard was, was Andy Warhol, who was, uh, was their, their manager. So let's, uh, let's hear the, the song Venus in Furs. Okay, so uh, my three words to to describe this album uh, were uh, "Sonic Journey Underground." <laughs> so, uh, well, why don't I uh, why don't I get you, your thoughts uh, on this before I uh, before I keep going here? Uh, for me, this is like uh, just cream of the crop, one of my faves all time. Listen to this a lot in college for various reasons. And then, uh, still quite a bit nowadays. Uh, it's probably, probably, if I had to pick one record to listen to on vinyl, I probably would go with this. It sounds awesome on vinyl. Dude? <sighs> it's overrated. Oh my God. But it, oh. but it, <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's fine. 60s, you know, drug induced music with sitar and stuff. I mean, it's good. I like Lou Reed. Interesting characters here. Interesting story behind the band, but 
I don't I don't know why I, I've tried really hard to be into it because I am an album nerd and I know that that's one of the ones I'm supposed to hold in high regard and I listen to it every once in a while but I just I don't get why it's like to the risen to the level of like Sgt. Pepper or something because it doesn't it just isn't there to okay. me. Andy, you, you mentioned college, and actually, when it, my first exposure to this this record was in a, a pop music in America class that that I took in college, I was aware of the Velvet Underground, and I knew of Lou Reed and, and John Cale, but I had never listened to them. Uh, but for this class, we were required to to listen to to certain songs, and so you you know I would go to the listening room and, and listen on headphones, and Heroin was was on the uh, on this playlist, and. I remember just being blown away, you know, as I, as I was sitting there in that, in that room. Uh, and so I immediately bought the, the album and I played that song for, you know, anybody I, I saw, uh, for, <laughs> for quite a while. So I, I just really, you know, fell in love with, with the band at that time. You know, Lou Reed, uh, it, you know, his lyrics, it's like he's a, a beat poet, but he's, you know, talking about things from that, that New York City art underground. You know, so he's dealing with, uh, you know, obviously drugs and acquiring drugs. Uh, he's dealing with, I mean, it sounds like S&M. So it's, you know, just this, maybe this like seedy underbelly, I think that he's, that he's really capturing. Maybe that's it. It's that darkness of it, that dankness that I don't, I don't, it makes me uncomfortable and maybe that's the point, but it, I've just, I've never wanted that for anybody so when i hear music like that it just makes me feel sad that there are people that live that yeah, way i get that i was gonna say it might not be the most healthy way to live but there was a lot of great art that came out of that new york city scene that the, these guys were a part of i historically i think i mean god if you took away this band or this this record even i think we would, music would be a lot different today than, than where we're at now uh, and this is, you know, really counter to, to the scene that was going on simultaneously, like in, in San Francisco, that, that hippie scene, you know, this was, I mean, these guys, you know, even though they were experimental, they were doing something different, you know, that didn't really have any connection to, to that stuff. You know, this was darkness, you know, not, uh, not peace and love. So also, you know, the other kind of main character, uh, in the Velvet Underground was, was John Cale. You know, he was a, a classically uh, trained musician, uh, but he was really into experimental sounds. It's, uh, really drone. And so a lot of songs like that, that Venus and, and Furs, um, you know, has that, that droning sound, which, uh, you know, is, uh, is unique f for them. What about Nico? I, I understand that, uh, she was kind of not part of the band, but Andy Warhol being kind of the master artist, uh, while not painting cans of soup, uh, was coming up with, what he wanted this band to sound like and they kind of forced her on them is that true um i mean that's that's my understand I, I i'm not sure if like forcing is is the right word you know i think uh, the velvet underground were the the house band at warhol's sort of art collective i think it was called the factory uh, and so i think nico was was in that same scene you know she was a model and an actress uh, and also a, a singer yeah i i think it was you know Warhol's coaxing that that got her to you know that led to her singing the the lead vocals uh, on on three of the the songs uh, but I'm not sure that the that the Velvet Underground were resistant to to her she doesn't appear on any other records after this but so speaking of that why don't we uh, why don't we listen to uh, the ninth cut on the album uh, I'll be your mirror in case you don't know I be the wind the rain and the sunset 
light on your door to show that you're home. Yeah, so, uh, you know, a really simple pop song. Uh, so, that, you know, this album is not just noise and, and drone uh, experimentalism. You know, there's there's three or four, you know, real pop songs. Uh, Femme Fatale is kind of a, a classic song. So many artists have, uh, have have covered that one over the years. Uh, Sunday Morning is a, is, a, is a pop song as well. So, yeah, so it's not all, you know, gloom and, and darkness. I, th- I think one thing that for me, that maybe I'll just add in here, um, that really stands out is the sort of like fuzziness to the production here. And there's sort of like a, a hum, especially to the guitars, but on, on more, some tracks more than others that I hear a lot in modern music nowadays, especially like, you know, like garage rock and indie rock, even just that subgenre as a whole. It's really cool. It has a rough, rough rawness to it. It almost feels like they're doing these kind of on the spot. Um, which I think adds a lot of immediacy and just kind of urgency to this music that I didn't really hear much at the time or, or really even sense. It's, it feels so, even nowadays, it feels very present and kind of in the moment as you're listening to it. It really absorbs you and kind of sucks you into this, this space and you really kind of feel like you're there. There are, you know, several points on the album where it just, it's basically just noise, <laughs> you know, it just the, you know, <laughs> yeah. those chaotic sounds. And I think, you know, if you hear that, you might say, boy, these guys can't play their instruments. You know, this is, this is crap. Those were my favorite parts, honestly. Yeah. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, that's the most like band like, the most musician like parts of it instead of just kind of the, the 60s drone, you know? Well, why don't we, uh, why don't we play that little chaotic part of, of heroin here? Now, I really do believe that that kind of stuff that they were doing influenced artists at the time, like uh, contemporaries, even the Beatles and bands like that, I think were taking that like, oh, yeah, we could do that. Uh, any final thoughts? Uh, if somehow you haven't heard this, you got to hear it if you're a music fan. Um, I agree. I do. Just because I think it's overrated doesn't mean I don't think it's good. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, one one other uh, interesting point I have, uh, you know, I, I tend to think of you know Lou Reed as being sort of an avant garde artist. You know, uh, from what I hear, I mean, he was actually sort of the the commercial force in the band. So you had John Cale that was actually trying to push you know towards noise and, and drone and things like that, and it's Lou Reed that you know was was really trying to to make the the band commercially successful. You know, for the fun of it, I really considered making my pick Lulu because it was the debut <laughs> album of Lou Reed and Metallica. Oh, and I listened to it, but I mean, it's got its moments, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't feature that as something I, we talk about for 10 minutes yeah, on the show. Thank so. you. But I thought it would be nice continuity. <laughs> Thanks for not picking that. <laughs> You're very welcome. Okay. So that was the, the Velvet Underground and Nico. All right, and now a word from our sponsor, us. This is friendship. Pure, unadulterated friendship. Hey, music fans. Are you uh, looking for a place to talk about great classic records such as The Velvet Underground? I was, and then I found the Album Nerds Discord. (laughs) (laughs) I went to albumnerds.com slash discord. Well, that's quite a find, Andrew. <laughs> Let me tell you about it, buddy. It's just a magical place where music nerds gather, share their opinions and thoughts, listening experiences, 
And yeah, you can even suggest topics and for the upcoming Help Nerds podcast. If you're not familiar with Discord, it's basically just a community-based platform where you just sign in with your email address and you're up and going really quick. You can message us directly. And it's free. It's free. Most importantly, it's free. Yeah. You can share funny images and videos and clips and all that sort of stuff. So, albumnerds.com slash Discord. From their second album, Sparkle and Fade, that's the Portland Trio, Everclear, with their new video, Heroin Girl. I didn't know you could say that on Smack, here on 120 Minutes. I'm Jeff Buckley. And I'm Michael Ty. And we're guest hosting tonight. Penis! We've got a brand new video <laughs> coming up from the Cranberries. <laughs> All right, so that was Jeff Buckley, who I will be featuring here today with his debut album, Grace. And that was him and a fellow band member guest hosting 120 Minutes for that week. People don't remember what that was. It was a show on MTV that was featuring alternative bands. And apparently he decided to see what he could get away with on television. <laughs> so that side of his personality aside, let's get into the album Grace, which was released on August 23rd, 1994. Let's listen to a little bit of Mojo Pin. So that was a bit of Mojo Pin from uh, Jeff Buckley. I featured a piece where he gets a little more aggressive. That's some of my favorite stuff on the album. For those of you that don't know about Jeff Buckley, one re- one one actual uh, studio album, and he passed away in 1997, accidental drowning uh, while recording the next album. But he's kind of best known for a cover song that was on this album, Hallelujah written by Leonard Cohen, and that's very smooth, sweet vocals, and that's part of why I wanted to show that side of him to start off. Gentlemen, Jeff Buckley to you, what does it mean? (laughs) Well, I mean, he's obviously a a unique vocal talent, and so that's that's what I I think of when I hear Jeff Buckley. Yeah, obviously the vocals are standout. Pretty good lyricist as well. Yeah, this reminds me specifically of the mid to late 90s was kind of... I was listening to him a lot, so it definitely takes me back to that time period. Cool. So my three words, and I think you'll probably agree with these, dreamy, not only because he was handsome, but also because the music is very dreamy and ethereal and has lots of cool little guitar flourishes and sounds diverse because there's a lot of different styles all kind of blended in here. And vocality, which I don't think is a word, (laughs) but uh, you're talking about his voice. And... It it is it set a new standard for what people thought was okay in in rock music. I mean, uh, Freddie Mercury kind of set a standard of an operatic kind of thing. This was another, you know, uh, I guess an offshoot of that, but a lot of falsetto, a lot of vibrato, but done just the in the transitions are what made it so special. And then you know, uh, I think other artists took that cue and, and uh, Radiohead and uh, Hours and uh, mm-hmm. Muse, mm-hmm. Yep. I yeah. think, took that and ran. That's a really good points, Matt. I didn't really thought about how this his sound influenced those later artists. It, it, to me, it's, it's kind of like a mixing of like R&B vocals with like the rock guitar of like the time period. I'd be curious, like if he was around like when his dad was around, like what what this music would sound like. Oh, yeah. We should mention Tim Buckley, his father, who was a folk 
musician, uh, died when he was in his late 20s, drug overdose, only met Jeff once. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, probably the same because uh, if Jeff Buckley were obviously not a child at the time, <laughs> but he grew up on Led Zeppelin, loving Led Zeppelin mm-hmm. and and uh, wanted to be that kind of artist. And Eternal Life, the song on the album, the, probably the hardest rocking one, definitely has that bluesy... It's not Zeppelin-y exactly, but you can hear it. You can tell that that influence is there. Andy, it's interesting you brought up the soulful voice. I guess during the recording of this album, he took several days off because in an interview, he got compared to Michael Bolton because they both had had soulful voices and he just... couldn't process that and he couldn't perform. <laughs> I celebrate the guy's entire catalog. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Office space. Um, so Don, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I, I think it's uh, it, it's an excellent album. My favorite moments, and I hate saying this, my favorite moments actually are the, the three covers. I think it's just the, the way that they, they frame his voice. Uh, you know, so when I hear the, the Corpus Christi carol, yeah, give me, give me more of that. Cause I, you know, I just think his, his voice is just so unique and, and interesting. Uh, I like all his, his uh, original songs, but I, I don't think they, you know, quite, you know, frame the, the vocals, uh, the, the way that, uh, that the, the covers do. What's the, uh, what's the third cover? Lilac Wine. Oh, that's a cover? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was, um, it was performed by Nina Simone, right? And the the version he liked was um, Eartha Kit. He liked the Eartha Kit okay. version. Why don't we listen to a little bit of Lilac Wine and hear that smooth vocal delivery? I cannot see clearly. Isn't that she coming to me? So, yeah, you're right, Don. Hallelujah, Lilac Wine and Corpus Christi Carol, certainly. Those were the the more... That one was a little jazzy. Yeah. That gives me goosebumps, actually. Yeah. Um, and I, I also... One th- one thing I appreciate about the, the production on the album is they, they don't really mess with his voice. There's, uh, you know, there's not a lot of overdubbing or multi-tracking i don't think there there's much uh processing on his voice so I, i'm glad they um you know they they left that alone i don't know if i've ever mentioned this to either of you two but i did see him live <laughs> are uh, you joking <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i brag about it all the time okay. um i've heard i've it's heard the like story a cafe yeah. or something like you sat right next to they him turned the lights out tuned his guitar or something yeah, I, I I I actually uh performed in his place because he wasn't feeling well. No one could tell the difference. Um, <laughs> no, but it was one of those things like, you know, when uh, this is what I wanted to talk about. My friend was really my friend Scott was really into this record that came out in June and I I thought it was okay. I liked the rockin'er songs. I didn't get lilac wine and stuff i'm like i don't why why is he singing all you know i was like i don't get it so he convinced me to go see him and when we saw the show i was just like holy shit you know it's one of those uh, during his encore people sat on the floor you don't sit on the floor in a club that's disgusting (laughs) that opened when i then listened to this album after that you know have you ever had those moments when a live band it just you're like oh my god how did i not hear this this way on the album before then you hear it 
So then when you listen to the album, it just blows you away every time. It still does all these years later. Yeah. It's one of those rare records that really can give you goosebumps just by putting it on. There's a few moments on it that are really kind of of another world, I would say. Let's listen to a little bit of So Real. I wanted to get a little, uh, one of hit the more of the freak out parts on this album. Is that the Velvet Underground? I was gonna say we be back and play yeah, Velvet Underground. Yeah, there, exactly. <laughs> but then, then it, you know breaks into the "I love you, but I'm afraid to love you" mm-hmm. stuff, and it's that variation. And Velvet Underground did. That's why I said those were my favorite moments on that album. When you take it to this place and then you bring it back down, I love that. Hey, uh, just looking through your notes here, dude. What's the uh, Gary Lucas? Is he the one of the guitars? Uh, Gary Lucas was involved in the writing of a few of these songs, co-writing these songs. They had worked together before he got the record deal. They were in a band called Gods and Monsters that was Gary Lucas's. He was in a uh, member of Captain Beefheart's band, and he met he met Jeff at the uh, there was a there was like a tribute to Tim Buckley in 1991 that Jeff performed at, and that's kind of where he first got industry attention. Gotcha. And he met, I believe that's where he met uh, Gary Lucas, and then they worked together on some of the early songwriting. And Gary did play guitar on the album a little bit. It's interesting, kind of a big generational gap there between them. But uh, yeah, that's cool. They were able to collaborate. Jeff Buckley, man, uh, generational talent. One of the best debut albums of all time, in my opinion, and uh, unique. And no one will ever make anything like it again. Cool. Good pick, man. Good one. It's pure enjoyment, and the lyrics are. I can't. It's hard to describe, but they're very. They're poetic and dreamy, and his delivery of every word just is unique. There's just something really special about it. Check out Grace, Jeff Buckley. Well, one of us had to do it. <laughs> I'm your density. All right, well, it's about that time to uh, get out the old musical wheel of destiny here and give her a spin. If you're new here on the show, this is uh, basically our Wheel of Fortune style topic selector. We have a huge wheel that uh, the dude has constructed in his home very, (laughs) very uh, lovingly. He's going to uh, get his beautiful wife to uh, give it a spin for us. Hopefully she won't hurt her shoulder again. Come on, Jonas Brothers. <laughs> Come on, Spice Girls. Oh, sax appeal. This is an album where the saxophone is prominent. <laughs> this is going to be challenging. Sax appeal. Oh, man, appeal. I got some ska records queued up for you guys. Man. No, no ska. That's, uh, it says that in parentheses. It says no ska. <laughs> I just put it there. <laughs> I got Kenny G. <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, what's your favorite debut record? Uh, what what album has sax appeal? Uh, to what else are you listening? Uh, let us know. Join fellow <laughs> album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com or leave a voicemail at 585-210-2454. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at albumnerds. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
Later, turds. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening to the Alp Nerds podcast. <laughs> wow. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Album Nerds podcast. Well, you're so you sound so excited. <laughs> it just it took all my it took my energy too. Um, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody. If the good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. I think it's your best one yet. <laughs>